Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is what President Trump said in a video message on Wednesday. Mob violence goes against everything I believe in and everything our movement stands for. No true supporter of mine could ever endorse political violence. And this is what Trump said at a rally on January 6th before a mob of pro-Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Can Trump be prosecuted for that inflammatory speech urging the crowd to go to the Capitol and demand legislators address his baseless claims of voter fraud? Joining me is Shireen Sinar, a professor at Stanford Law School who studies the legal treatment of political violence. Let's start with the broad question first. Can President Trump be prosecuted for inciting the riot? So the standard for incitement is a high standard under criminal law. And you know, the first thing I would say is that we should separate out the criminal prosecution question from the question of whether he incited the riot in a broader moral or political sense, or even in terms of the impeachment proceedings against him. But in terms of a criminal prosecution, because of a 1969 Supreme Court decision in a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, the standard for prosecuting somebody for advocacy of violence is high. You have to show both that their speech was intended to produce imminent lawless action and that it was likely to produce that kind of action. So there are questions about whether what the president said in the context in which he said it could meet that standard. So could a case be made out here? I think there's a case to be made, in part not just from the words, but also from the context in which he made the comments that he did at the rally immediately preceding the invasion of the Capitol. And so it's not just the language of taking back our country, strength, and so forth, but also the fact that the crowd that he was speaking to was shouting, fight for Trump, fight for Trump at the time. But it will also rest on facts we don't fully know right now. So for instance, the more it can be shown that the president had knowledge that groups were planning an invasion of the Capitol in the days before the attack, or that there were already groups like the Proud Boys in D.C. there fighting with police on the eve of the attack, then it could strengthen the case that he intended violence to result from his remarks. In an investigation, a grand jury could subpoena internal White House documents and even question White House aides to find out what Trump said or knew prior to the riot, would that help determine his intent? If it emerges from that that he had a strong knowledge of the plans of certain groups that were coming to D.C. to be part of the protest, then that can help show that what he intended by you know, asking 
followers to, to fight for him and to be strong, you know, was more than just peaceful protest. How likely is it that a president or a former president, because we assume that this is going to be handled by the Justice Department under Joe Biden, that a former president would be prosecuted? That's hard to say because it is so unprecedented, but so much of what we are seeing now is is unprecedented, and there's not a, a pattern or a historical example in recent times that we can draw on. So I think I'd rather not speculate about the likelihood of prosecution. Some of it turns on you know, the decision-making by U.S. attorneys, some turns on the political context. So there's a lot that could go into that kind of decision. Could some of the other speakers at the rally be prosecuted? For example, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal attorney. Let's have trial by combat. So the words of Giuliani that really stand out are the reference to trial by combat. He can still argue that what he meant by that, and in the context of the sentence, it's actually not entirely clear. He could argue that that was not a reference to literal physical combat, um, but a reference to combat in the same way that we often use the word fight to mean a struggle. You know, combat certainly does have a more militaristic connotation even than than fight, but there is a defense there that the intent was not literally inciting people to break down the doors of the Capitol. What about charges of seditious conspiracy? Seditious conspiracy requires people agreeing either to overthrow the government or oppose federal authority by force, including preventing the execution of federal law. And so the argument, I suppose, would be that if the president agreed to use force to prevent the certification of the Electoral College vote, that would amount to interrupting a lawful federal process in terms of the statute. But you would have to show more than the fact that the president wanted the certification not to happen. You you would have to show some agreement with others to impede that process through force. And so, again, it's not just engaging in a series of actions to delegitimize the election or even to invite right-wing, support right-wing militants, but specifically prevent the certification through force. So seditious conspiracy, that might be a charge that's better suited to the rioters themselves? I I think certainly the conduct of some of the rioters um, falls within that description, but I also think we need to be careful of using seditious conspiracy charges, and um, that's because we do have a long history of using sedition laws to suppress dissent. And while the people who invaded the Capitol were not engaging in merely peaceful protests, we should be careful about normalizing a framework uh, that is connected to the suppression of ideas and that um, is likely to uh, perhaps have its strongest effect on um, uh, on others. And you know, I would note in that context that it was just a few months back that the Attorney General was suggesting using seditious conspiracy charges against people uh, in the police protest. Uh, and you know, in the past, the successful uses of that charge have been against Puerto Rican nationalists, radical anarchists, Muslims. Uh, the government uh, has tried to use that charge against white supremacists and at least a couple of high-profile cases over the past 30, 40 years, um, but uh, multiple prosecutions ended in dismissal of charges or acquittal. Um, so we do need to be careful about the 
the longer term and more systemic consequences of any expanded use of sedition charges. That brings me to the question of, of domestic terrorism. And many people are saying, well, the FBI couldn't investigate here because they can't investigate for domestic terrorism unless the case has been opened. Do so I think there's some misinformation about the scope of federal authority, uh, including to, to launch investigations. And the FBI guidelines for investigations, which is essentially the um, you know the closest thing to a charter or a framework for for their authority, uh, it has a, a fairly low standard when it comes to initiating investigations um, in, in the context of of speech. Um, so, for instance, the FBI can open an assessment into potential illegal activity without having to show any particular factual basis for suspicion. So, and that assessment, that's a form of investigative authority that allows the FBI to look at social media posts and even send out informants um, to to target particular individuals. Um, So that's a set of powers that is available to the FBI, even in the absence of a specific factual basis or predication for thinking that an individual is about to engage in in violence. Um, And similarly, there is a restriction um, in the sense that the FBI is not supposed to engage uh, investigations solely on account of speech. Uh, But the way that the FBI interprets that is it's not solely on account of speech if there is a concern that a group is interested in violence. Um, so that uh, you know, those investigative authorities are already quite broad, and the lack of a domestic terrorism, uh, you know, process for designating organizations, you know, as domestic terrorist organizations, is not an impediment to that already very large authority. So, is there a difference between the act itself, what we saw that he did, and whether or not the proof of intent is there? Yeah, well, I think it's one thing to say that the president bears moral and political responsibility for instigating the violence. There's no question in my mind that the comments made, not just at the day of the rally, but in the preceding months, and you know, for that matter, the entire campaign of delegitimizing um, the election, um, uh, that the president bears responsibility for what unfolded. But that's a separate question from whether the intent required by the, you know, the constitutional test uh, is Senator Dick Durbin plans to reintroduce a domestic terrorism bill after the inauguration. Tell me what your opinion is of the need for a domestic terrorism bill. I think if there's legislation that is intended to increase awareness and information as to how the government has responded to domestic terrorism. So some of the bills are primarily about uh, understanding the law enforcement response, for example. Um, and so that's, that's one thing. But if the bill is intended, and, and some of the bills, new domestic terrorism bills that have been introduced over the last year or so, are intended to create a new, broad federal domestic terrorism criminal charge. And my view on that is both that the charge wouldn't be necessary because there are uh, numerous uh, criminal charges that can already be brought uh, to prosecute domestic terrorism, uh, but also that creating a new charge um, has 
problems. And, you know, again, the context here is that terrorism and security laws have been used most vigorously against people of color and those who challenge the prevailing racial and socioeconomic order. So you might think you're aiming at white supremacists by creating a new charge, um, but that same charge ends up then being deployed against folks protesting police brutality or indigenous protesters you know, responding to oil pipelines um, in their communities and, and things of that sort. Um, so there's a danger in creating broad new terrorism charges, and if that's the nature of a domestic terrorism proposal, that's problematic. Do you think that the investigations into domestic terrorism since 9-11 to date, do you think a lot of them have gone too far or gone astray? Well, they're two separate but related issues. So on the one hand, uh, the FBI has not sufficiently prioritized investigations into white supremacist uh, violence. And not just the FBI, but um, the security agencies more broadly failed to consider it a threat for a very long time. You know, when they sort of belatedly recognized it as a threat, um, you know, it was after years of of some of these organizations um, uh, already, um, you know, working for many years kind of uh, below the radar. So there's been, on the one hand, a failure to prioritize uh, white supremacist violence. You know, on the other hand, we've seen that even with respect to domestic groups that have absolutely no international tie, um, there have been concerns about intrusive FBI investigation. So in 2010, the Justice Department um, uh, Inspector General, which is a watchdog agency uh, within the department, uh, published a review where it looked at uh, FBI investigations of anti-war groups, uh, animal rights, environmental organizations, and other groups on the left. And it found that in uh, some of those investigations, there had been a very, very thin basis for launching the investigation and that those investigations continued um, even when it became apparent that people were not planning any, um, you know, anything illegal. Um, so there's good reason to be you know, concerned about um, investigations. And, and I don't think that this, that, that concern uh, sort of segregates domestic from international terrorism. In other words, uh, the FBI's investigations have been broad um, and concerning with respect both to uh, perceived uh, Muslim threats as well as uh, with respect to various uh, left-wing um, and, you know, threats or you know, the, the FBI's uh, you know, investigative report on black identity extremists um, from a couple of years ago being kind of one example of a very broad framing of protests and, and dissent when it comes from, say, racial justice protesters. Um, uh, the, you know, but on the other hand, those concerns are paired with a concern that uh, the FBI hasn't uh, provided sufficient attention to white supremacists, which they now belatedly recognize as the most significant um, threat uh, domestically. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Shireen Sinar, professor at Stanford Law School, who studies the legal treatment of political violence. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. 
at Stiefel. It's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Even before last week's violence at the Capitol, lawmakers and civil rights advocates had been pressuring social media platforms to crack down on posts that encourage violence or hatred. While regulators in Europe have passed laws fining companies that fail to act on hate speech, the U.S. has largely left regulation to the companies. After the violence, Twitter suspended President Trump's account permanently due to the, quote, risk of further incitement of violence. Facebook and Instagram, which it owns, have suspended Trump until at least the January 20th inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, arguing that Trump intended to use his time left in office to undermine the peaceful transition of power. Joining me is Sanan Aral, a professor at MIT and director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. His new book is called The Hype Machine. What did social media tell you about the Capitol riots before last Wednesday? Well, there was a lot of chatter on social media about, you know, meeting for a march, about storming the Capitol. There was a lot of QAnon chatter about taking the Capitol, uh, about fighting. You know, a lot of it is done in the form of allusion, you know, alluding to violence. Uh, sometimes it's quite explicit. Uh, there was a lot of violent chatter on Parler. Um, and uh, even on other more mainstream social media, there was there were clear indications. Did the authorities just miss it, or did they misinterpret it? It's a very good question. I think the uh, the question as to why the FBI, the Capitol Police, Homeland Security, and so on were not more prepared on Wednesday is a very important open question because I think that. Uh, you know, all of the signs were there in all of the known channels, and uh, it would be it's very hard for me to believe that it was just missed uh, for some reason. There now appears to be some reports that the FBI did issue some warnings before the attack. Right. So, so it's hard for me to understand where the communication failure happened because there's also reports that the uh, DOD and other authorities and the National Guard offered assistance and it was declined multiple times. The information assistance in terms of saying, hey, uh, we're seeing chatter, uh, you should be more prepared, and or the actual physical um, you know, assistance of, of you know, more uh, personnel, uh, how that was lost in the chain of communication, I don't know. 
but I think a full investigation is warranted because given the amount of um, uh, chatter in advance, it was surprising to see uh, the Capitol not prepared for what happened on Wednesday. Now we're getting a lot of warnings about what might happen on Inauguration Day. What are you seeing now on social media? Well, I think that uh, there are ample warnings that continue uh, that things may happen on the 17th, uh, on the 18th, and on the 20th. And I would be very surprised if uh, the inauguration were not more prepared than the Capitol on Wednesday. Um, There is no excuse for not being prepared on Inauguration Day. And in fact, in the next several days, Uh, leading up to the inauguration, given the amount of attention that has been brought to this and given the amount of conversation that happens on social media about uh, about this. I should add that there's also talk of uh, additional, uh, I guess you could call them threats, against state capitals. And so this isn't limited to Washington, D.C., but needs to be taken seriously across the country. Is it one group? Is it a lot of groups? I mean, how many actors are there here? Well, I think that it's it's difficult to say. There are a lot of ill-defined groups and or people who are unaffiliated that are privy to information that are being put out by groups. I think one group that obviously comes to mind is QAnon, obviously has been banned by Facebook, and uh, Facebook started cleaning out QAnon content prior even to the election, but they continue to have a voice on Parler and in other places. Before, Parler was a home for this kind of communication. 4chan and 8chan were channels uh, where you could find this type of content. So QAnon is one uh, loosely organized group um, that is not uh, really a formal organization so much as a set of ideals and ideas that are spread uh, on social media and elsewhere that have um, gained a lot of traction in recent years. You've written that false news travels farther and faster and more broadly than the truth online. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so we published a 10-year study on the cover of Science Magazine in March 2018 that studied all of the true and false verified news stories that had ever spread on Twitter in those 10 years. And what we found was that the false news traveled farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information that we studied, and that false political news was especially viral. And so that presents an important challenge because false narratives can create false beliefs and people can act on those false beliefs. Uh, and debunking of that falsity rarely catches up to the lie. And therefore, if you have false narratives, for instance, around election integrity or fraud during the election, uh, and if you use those narratives to convince people that the election was stolen and that they must, quote unquote, fight, uh, that that can really rile people up and create the types of outcomes that we saw on Wednesday. Why does the false news travel so fast and is accepted so readily? So we 
had a number of hypotheses. At first, we thought that, well, maybe false news spreaders have more followers, or maybe they follow more people, or maybe they're more often verified accounts, or they've been on Twitter longer, et cetera. And we checked each one of these in turn, and the opposite was true. False news spreaders had fewer followers, followed fewer people, had been on Twitter for less time or less often verified and so on. And so we had to come up with other explanations. And what we looked at was the emotional content and the novelty of the information. And what we found was that false news is shocking, it's novel, and when you read the cognitive science literature, you find that human attention is drawn to novelty, things that are new in the environment, because uh, that's what's going to update our beliefs about the state of the world. And when you read the sociology literature, what you find is that we gain in status when we share novel information because we're seen as being in the know or having access to inside information, quote unquote. And so we tend to have, uh, and when we looked at the emotions, we found that the false news was blood boiling. It was anger inducing. It was shocking. It was disgusting. It was salacious. And that gets our attention, and then we feel the knee-jerk urge to share it, and that's what drives false news to be uh, more viral. That's so interesting. The social media platforms, what are they doing, if anything, to stop the false narratives? Well, I mean, I think that you can see that in the last six months, they have stepped up their efforts to address the spread of information. A year ago or so, uh, Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech in front of Georgetown at a lectern. He said, we don't want to be the arbiters of truth. We don't want to have any, uh, you know, sort of role in that. But I think the pressure mounted. And uh, in the last six months or so leading up to the election, uh, the social media platforms began moderating content a lot more proactively and aggressively. And they uh, implemented several different policies, including, uh, for instance, Twitter, uh, forcing you to quote tweet instead of retweet without thinking, nudging you to read the article before you retweet it, um, de-emphasizing false misinformation, public health misinformation in uh, search results, uh, demonetizing fake news on WhatsApp, Facebook, limited the number of reshares of any type of information to try and slow all information down. First, they limit it to five, then one uh, reshares. And so now what you see is them taking even more uh, visible actions, which culminated in the banning of Donald Trump's account by uh, not just Facebook and Twitter, but also Pinterest, Snapchat, um, and other places. And so it's sort of boiled to uh, come to a head. Now, I think I should point out that when Twitter banned Donald Trump's account, uh, they used two tweets as a justification, which were frankly much more innocuous than the content he had put out beforehand. And because Twitter's policy was reactive instead of proactive, they were caught uh, off guard banning the account on what some might argue was innocuous grounds. And so that provides uh, fodder for the argument that this is censorship, it's absurd that you would ban on a, an account on these two tweets. Um, but their argument is that in the, context, in the broader context of all the content, 
the repeated misinformation, the repeated calls to violence um, and uh, incendiary content, that's the justification for the ban. I think now what we have to be careful about is what uh, has been termed the splinter net, the sort of tearing apart of our human social network into different factions where conservatives uh, go to parlor and, you know, liberals maybe go to other social networks. After the ban, what you saw was Trump allies uh, condemning the ban and then saying, like, for instance, Mark Levine, Rush Limbaugh, um, what some might call fringe conservatives who have a large following saying, I'm voluntarily suspending my account on Twitter, follow me on Parler and Rumble, and let's have the conversation there. Uh, and so we have to be very careful about this splintering of our civil society, because any student of negotiation knows that in order to achieve collaboration, cooperation, and even empathy, you have to have common ground. And if we split into these factions with different sets of information, uh, they're seeing completely different narratives and never talking to each other, that empathy is hard to achieve. There was action taken against Parler. Is that going to stop it being a means of communication? I don't think so. So, you know, Amazon uh, removed it from its hosting services. As soon as that happened, people said, oh, this is uh, big tech uh, controlling the Internet. And I predicted that they would get a new hosting service, and they did. So they announced today that they've gotten a new hosting service. So they really weren't disrupted for that long. There's There are always going to be, um, you know, hosting services that are willing to host services like Parler. I think more uh, dangerous than the shutting down of, uh, of Parler is the, the bifurcation of civil society into completely unconnected uh, factions. If you want to try to stop, you know, these kinds of violent communications, and yet you don't want to bifurcate the communication lines, what should you do? Well, I think there are a number of things that we need to be doing. And by the way, you know, I write extensively in my book about how we uh, sort of move forward to achieve the promise of social media and avoid the peril. There are uh, so many important conversations that we need to be having about antitrust, federal privacy legislation, election integrity, the spread of misinformation, uh, and so on, all of which, you know, I think are important parts of this conversation. But I think two things in particular relate to your specific question. And the first is that the platforms need to create uh, comprehensive, systematic, and transparent content moderation policies. Uh, so far, they've been quite reactive. I'll just point to the Hunter Biden email scandal and how Twitter handled that. They First, they banned it, then they allowed it, then they changed their rules in order to justify the, the, the specific decisions that they had made. That's completely backwards. What the platforms need to do is to write down very specific, detailed, comprehensive, and transparent content moderation policies, uh, and they need to consult experts in writing those policies so that they can have a debate about the policies rather than the specific decisions on a given account or a given tweet or post. Um, secondly, I think that this uh, uh, magnifies to a great degree the need for interoperability between the networks. I argue very strongly for this in my book. And what I mean is that if you take the antitrust case against Facebook, 
the argument there is that Facebook is a monopoly and we should break them up. But the social media economy runs on network effects, which means that the value of a platform is a function of the number of users it has. And economies that run on network effects tend toward market concentration. So if you break up the market leader, you're just going to tip the next Facebook-like company into, into market dominance. But what could achieve competition in the social media economy is uh, interoperability and social network portability. So uh, when AOL merged with Time Warner, what we did was we required AOL's instant messenger to become interoperable with Yahoo Messenger and MSN Messenger and accept messages going across. That made their market share go down from 65% to 59% to 55%. And then they seeded the entire market to new entrants three years later. And interoperability, therefore, uh, would help create competition in the social media economy. But it would also help stitch the networks together in a way that you could send messages from one network to another so they weren't completely bifurcated. So in this way, interoperability could not only help create structural reforms that create the competition we want to see in the social media economy, but they could also help mend the networks so that we remain connected in a world where uh, people want to choose different services. Thanks, Sanam. That's Sanam Aral, professor at MIT. His book is called The Hype Machine. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.